Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there were no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking you to speak to us through your word. Lord, enhance, enlarge, clarify who Jesus is for us this morning, I pray. And as we see him, Lord, would that do a transforming work in our hearts as well? We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I want to welcome you here in case you're new or visiting. Great, great to have you gathered with us this morning. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our seven-week series in the book of Mark, trying to answer the question, who Jesus is, or more largely or more broadly speaking, who, who God is. Often, I think our understanding of who Jesus is is largely based on our view of ourselves. We, we tend to view Jesus and, and God through our own lens. J- Jesus, we think, m- must be like me. He, he must care about the same things I care about. And of course, sure, if he's God, he's probably a couple notches at least better than I am. And instead, instead of seeing God the, the way we would like to see him, we need God to help us see who he is and, and in consequence, who, who, who we are. We, instead of creating God after our likeness, we need God to reveal himself to us because if we do see God through our own lens, what happens is we tend to concoct a version of God that suits our own needs. 
that suits our own needs. In the year 2005, uh, Christian Smith and his colleagues wrote a very influential book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This book came out in the year 2005, but what it tried to do is uh, lay out the, the religious landscape amongst teenagers in America. And so if that came out in the year 2005, that's many of us today. These are adults today. And so he says, this is, these are the five common spiritual beliefs. Put them up on the screen for us. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, I would argue all of us already believe, or at least are drawn to and tempted to believe some combination of those five things. And what I hope, to st hope for us to see this morning is that the Jesus of the Bible surprises us. He surprises us. He's, he's so much better than we can imagine. He, he's not just a, a couple notches better. He's infinitely better. Not, not just in degree, but in kind. And therefore, Jesus is able to address actually our greatest need and our greatest longing. So I'm, I think we see a number of surprises in our text this morning. I'm going to go through four of them. This is my outline for this morning. Surprising obstacle. A surprising faith. A surprising cure. And fourthly, a surprising identity. So firstly, a surprising obstacle. L look at your Bibles once more. Mark 2, verses 1 and following. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. We're told that this event takes place in Capernaum. Capernaum is a small fishing village right on the lakeside of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that Capernaum became Jesus' home base for his ministry. It's the place, actually, Jesus made his residency when he wasn't traveling around the surrounding region. And... Just prior to this text, we're told that in Capernaum, Jesus has just performed many miracles and healings. And so then Jesus goes out, he begins preaching to the surrounding region, and he comes back, and you can almost feel the buzz, right? Je Jesus is back. 
The, the man who did all those amazing things. Come on, let, let's go look at him. Let, let's, go, let's go see what he's going to do this time. And among those who want to go see Jesus are a paralytic man and his four friends. They're trying, these friends, to get their friend to Jesus. So that Jesus can heal him. But they can't, we're told. Because the, the house is packed. There, there's no more room. You can't even peer your head inside the door. And what a surprising obstacle. Jesus is not far off. Jesus is not hidden. They know where he is. And yet they can't get to him because of the crowd. Because of the crowd. Now look, I know that all of us, when we hear the sirens on an ambulance, we pull over to the side of the road right away. Of course, naturally, right? E even though there's a little bit in us that goes, oh, it'd be nice to just have the smooth sailing and all the cars are over, I just go a little longer, right? We don't actually do that though. Even though you think, you think, oh, is it really an emergency? Of course, of course you pull over to the side of the road, right? You think it, but you don't actually believe it. So, but yet, in this situation, okay, the crowd sees the desperation. They realize this is an emergency. And they know something can be done about it. That's why they're there in this house. Because they saw Jesus heal so many others before. And yet, the crowd refuses to make way. Now, I think it would be possible to go, oh, this is just some added detail to carry the plot forward in the story. Right? The crowd is just there, helps us understand what comes next. Except for the fact that in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds play a big deal. The crowds are central to the themes in this Gospel of Mark. In the first nine chapters, actually, of the book of Mark, we hear reference to the crowds over 40 times. You see, the crowds display the popularity of Jesus. The crowds are recipients of Jesus's compassion, but the crowds are also fickle and passive. And most significantly, the crowds obstruct access to Jesus. To, to truly be a follower of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, the crowds are something that needs to be overcome. You somehow, you have to get out of the crowd or, or through the crowd in order to access Jesus. And I think the same is true today. Um, crowds feel safe. It, when we're in a crowd, we, we feel like there's this extra layer of protection. I can, I can hide out a little bit. It allows me to remain in the background a little bit passive. People, the eyes aren't on me and... and People aren't aware of my imperfections and my, my flaws and my shortcomings. The, the crowds allow us to 
observe something and check something out without fully committing ourselves. There's safety in the crowds. Uh, I recently experienced this. We were at a conference, a number of us pastors, and they decided to bring, uh, begin the conference with a prayer, which is a great thing, obviously, um, except it was an action prayer. And so they said, uh, follow after me. Just pray with your hands what I'm going to pray. And all of a sudden, I find myself praying like, Jesus, we love you. We're all in this together. Thank you for being here. And we're friends with people. And, and I'm, I'm <laughs> going along with this. And I'm thinking, I have made the wrong life decisions. And, um, and yet, I'm like, I can't stop, though. Now, everyone is doing this. Um, but there, but there's, this, there's this safety in, in the crowd. Now, is it bad to be part of a crowd? No. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Jesus speaks to the crowds. He, he cares about the crowd. There, there is something good and right about uh, observing and, and peering in onto Christianity where we're not intimidated where we feel safe, where we can observe and, and figure things out. The, the problem is not that the crowds feel safe. The problem comes when being a part of the crowd feels sufficient. See, I think that the danger lies when we're part of the crowd and we feel the buzz. We, we, we feel the, the energy of the crowd. We, we enjoy being a part of something, of belonging, and we go, that's good enough. We, we, we want to enjoy Christianity from a distance. We, we want to feel like we get the benefits of Christianity through association. And we want to live, we want to enjoy Jesus vicariously through the lives of others. That, that's where the danger lies. And, and what Mark is telling us here, it's an invitation. The invitation is to come out of the crowd. To, to make your way all the way up to Jesus. To go, it's not enough for me just to know about Jesus. I want to know him personally. I don't want to just experience him through the lives of others. I want to experience him for myself. And there's risk in that. There's this vulnerability of, of stepping out. But, but again and again and again, we see that that's where true transformation lies. That's where life is experienced and joy in, in a personal relationship with Jesus. So firstly, we see the surprising obstacle. Secondly, then, we see surprising faith. Surprising faith. Look at, look at it again from the beginning. So when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, these four men, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith, the four men and the paralytic. 
Uh, Look at the nature of faith in these friends. The the nature of their faith here, okay? David Platt, pastor in the States, talks about these, these C's, these C's of faith. Let me show you them. First, there's the compassion. The compassion of these friends. Right? So word gets out that Jesus is back. The crowd start rushing to Jesus. And these four friends go, we have to get our paralyzed friend. They run in the opposite direction. They go, Jesus isn't just for us. He he needs to be for everyone. And so they go and get their friends. They show compassion. So then they carry their paralyzed friend to the house. And what do they find there? The house is full. And so instead of going, I guess it's not God's will this time. I guess it wasn't meant to be. Um, These friends get creative. They get creative. You can almost imagine they get to the house. It's full. And one of the friends goes, I know, we'll go on the roof. To which another friend goes, "Um, Jesus is inside the house. Not outside the house. Uh, I don't know what that's going to do. Uh, and then they go, and then the guy goes, no, no, no. I know what we'll do. Let's dig a hole in the roof. So, so the way it worked back then is normally a house would have been one story. A little bungalow with a rooftop patio. You would hang out on the roof when it would be cool at night. You'd sleep up there. You'd dry your laundry up there. And you'd have these stairs on the outside of the house leading up to the roof. Now, this roof... Um, the way it was constructed, if you have kind of these major wood beams, and then interwoven with that, you'd have smaller branches, and then interwoven with that, you would have thatch, so leaves and, and long grass, and then you would pack mud together. In, in total, you would pack mud about two feet thick. And then on top of that layer of mud, you would normally tile the top. And so when they go... Um, let's dig a hole in the roof. Literally, the language there in verse 4 is, let's, when it says they removed the roof, it, it literally reads, they unroofed the roof. And then when it says when they had made an opening, that word opening is literally, they dug. They're going to dig a hole through two feet of packed mud in order to get to Jesus. One pastor here in the Lower Mainland, he said, this is holy vandalism. We we are getting you to Jesus. It's creative. Whatever it takes kind of faith. Then, think of how contagious this faith must have been. I think... When everyone is running by this paralyzed man, he cannot get to Jesus on his own, and his four friends come by and says, come on, we're taking you. I think that stirs something in him. I think when they get to the house, and it's full, and his friends go, come on, we're going to go dig a hole. And they carry you up onto the roof and you watch them somehow, some way, dig a hole into the roof because they think if we can just get you to Jesus, something can happen. He can change you. I think that's a contagious type of faith. 
I think if there's any doubt in him about what Jesus can do, that begins to rub off on him. And notice, again, just how determined and persistent these friends are. Again and again. This is not easy to do. They're figuring out all of this on the fly. And yet, why do they press on and persevere? And why be so persistent? It's because of this. They believe Jesus is competent. That he's competent. If we can just get in front of Jesus, then he can care for our greatest need. I am aware that many of us have friends and family and loved ones who don't know Jesus. And it is really easy to become discouraged. We've, we've tried. We've tried to share the gospel with them. We prayed for them and nothing happened. Let me plead with you to be persistent, to, to persevere in your faith. It, 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 it doesn't involve <laughs> digging holes in the roof, but continue in prayer. Pray, pray for them. Tell them the good news of Jesus. Share the gospel with them. In, invite them to church. Listen, we believe that if we can just get in front of Jesus, he can change our life. Let me try and encourage you with this story. Um, George Mueller lived in Britain during the 19th century. George Mueller is famous for opening up a number of orphanages, and yet he did not ask for one dollar. Every single dollar, every single penny that he was given, he prayed for. And these were all answers to prayers. He's a great man of prayer. And one of the things he prayed for was the salvation of his friends. Listen to one account of his. So he says this. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without one single intermission. Eighteen months, eighteen months of daily prayer elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. And six more years passed before the third was converted. And yet these two remain unconverted. For next November, it will be 36 years since I began to pray. But I hope in God and I pray on and look yet for the answer. Uh, the biographer writes this. He says, of the two individuals still unconverted at the time of this sermon, one became a Christian before Mueller's death. That's 50 years of praying for them. And the other a few years later. Keep bringing people before Jesus. We serve a great and compassionate God. Thirdly, we see a surprising cure. A surprising cure. Verse 5 again reads this. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So you, you can imagine, right? You're standing in the house. 
uh, dirt begins to fall on your head. You look up, uh, you see sunlight where there once was not. And down through the hole comes a man, paralyzed, lying on a mat. And Jesus looks at this man and says, um, Son, your sins are forgiven. To which my thought would probably be, cool, 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 cool. Um, I don't think that's why he's here. I don't, I don't think that's the, the, the thing he came for, Jesus. I, I think he came for healing, <laughs> not to have his sins forgiven. And yet, Jesus knows actually the paralytic's greatest need, and that's what he's going to address. Um, Jesus, in the Bible, does not have a negative or an apathetic view towards the body. Again, Jesus, last week we just heard, healed the leper. Jesus does tons of miracles, healing people, right? So earlier in Mark, we read this. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And yet, even though Jesus says, I have the power and the ability to heal many, Jesus says, I've come for a more pressing need. So we read this a little later in Mark 1. Jesus has just healed many. This is the very next verse. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon, that's one of his disciples, and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, the people need more healing. They're, they're all searching for you. And what does he say to them? Jesus said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that's why I've come. To preach. Yes, I can heal. But more importantly, I've come to proclaim something, Jesus says. I have a message. And the message is one of good news. See, the message is this. That God created us to live in relationship with him. And yet... We rebelled against God. We, we did not live the way he asked us to live. We, we did not live up to his expectations for our lives, never mind our own expectations. And because of that, what the Bible calls sin, that, that transgressing God's commands, our relationship with God was broken. And as a result of that broken relationship, we also deserve judgment. The Bible says one of the ways that judgment is felt is through the brokenness of not only our relationship with God, with, but with everything else. So enter into the world thorns and thistles and disease and paralysis and death. But the message is one of good news. The message is that Jesus comes to forgive us of that sin to actually restore that relationship with God, and then as a result of that, that also fix everything else. See, when Jesus says, Son, your sin is forgiven, what he's saying is this. Your sin is like a weight 
pulling down a sinking ship. And my first order of business is to smash that chain. Before I can fix all that is broken in you, I need to deal with your sin. I need to free you from the weight of sin. And then I can fix the rest of you. This idea of personal sin that needs to be dealt with is incredibly um, culturally inappropriate. It is. Our culture does not speak this way. It doesn't doesn't like this language of sin. Um, Maria Gabriella de Faria, she's an award-winning actress in... um, a magazine, a Canadian magazine called Global Heroes, she says this. She says, ready? This is how you need to, this is how you have a flourishing life, a good life. She says, question everything. Look for your own truth. Live your own truth. Instead of repeating anyone else's, every day ask, what do I need today? And then go and get it. It could mean therapy, a change in your diet, a divorce, a yoga retreat, Or a medication. The only person who can walk through that door is you. Isn't that empowering? See, here's our our cultural view. That the the problem is out there. That we have to break societal norms. That there's a lack of knowledge or understanding. If we'd just know a little bit more, then all our problems would go away. If we would just have access to the right kind of help, then, then we'd be fixed. And yet the Bible says the problem is not out there. It's in here. It's my sin. And I think we know it. I think we feel it. I think when we pause and we reflect on our lives, we feel this sense of guilt and this shame. And we we have this sense that we're not quite living up to what we should be. That that we don't quite cut it. There's this this shame and, and dirtiness that we feel. We feel this internal worry and this unrest in our hearts. And we all feel it. We're we're a little bit like Lady Macbeth, right? She's an accomplice in a murder. And um, she she sees the spot of blood on her hand. And she's just trying to get it out. And she goes, out damned spot, she says. Out, I say. Who would have thought the old man would have so much blood in him? And she's, she's, she's trying to, to scrub off this, this stain of blood. And she goes, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Out, damn spot. And yet Jesus says, I've come to forgive. I can forgive you. One more little surprise about this cure. Um, how is it that the paralytic man comes to be forgiven? W- what does he do? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't walk to Jesus. He was carried there. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't lower himself into that room. He's just lying on a mat. Jesus looks at him. And then what does Jesus say? Okay, at least beg. <laughs> say please. Say please. And then I'll do it. 
No, Jesus looks at the man. He calls him affectionately son. And then he says, I forgive you. Don't come to Jesus trying to earn anything. Just come and have faith. Just just trust that Jesus can do what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus, I accept your gift of forgiveness. That's all it is. Fourthly, the surprising identity. Surprising identity. Look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes, those are these religious rulers, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Again, they're thinking all this. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or that you may, or that, say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus has just said, son, your sins are forgiven. And these religious rulers begin to be a little bit indignant. And they're, they're getting a little upset inside, and they're, and they're doing all of this rationalizing. They're trying to reason, how can, how can Jesus say that? Don't, doesn't he know only God can forgive sins? Right? That's what they're thinking. And guess what? They're right. They're right. They have perfect theology. They do. Th- think about it this way. So let's say... I'm standing here. Jake, for some cruel reason, comes up and hits me. Okay? Nothing Jake would ever do, naturally. But let's say he did. And then Neil in the back goes, that's okay. Jake, I forgive you. Um, no. Uh, who, who can forgive? The person who's been wronged. The person who's had something done to them. Neil can't forgive Jake. I have to forgive Jake. In the same way, these scribes are going, um, all sin is ultimately against God. A man can't forgive sin. I don't care how good a schmuck a man is. It's just a man. God has to be the one to forgive. And so, so what does... What does Jesus do? He knows what's going on in their mind. And first, he calls them out on it, right? Verse 8 says, And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he says to them, right? He's reading their hearts now. Why do you question these things in your hearts? To which probably already you're going, Ah, maybe this is not a normal man. Maybe there is something more to him. And then Jesus says, verse 10, okay, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You want me to prove it to you that I do have the ability to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. 
And immediately the paralyzed man stands up and walks out the door. You say only God can forgive sins and only God could heal a man like that. So who does that say that I am? And what authority does that say I have? I'm God, Jesus is saying. But look at the question. There's a question here in verse 9. Really interesting. Verse 9 says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? What's easier, church? What's easier? To say, Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? I don't think it's an easy question to answer. On one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It's a lot harder to say get up and walk because no one can prove it. Right? You can't, you can't test that out. You can't see if it actually happened. But you can see if someone can actually get up and walk. So on one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But the thing is for Jesus— Whatever he says, he does. The words of God are also the deeds of God. And so for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven are to actually forgive sins. And that in reality is far harder than healing a paralyzed man. What does it take Jesus to forgive sins? What does it take God to forgive sins? God had to become a man. You see, it's one thing for, for Jesus to say, you're forgiven, and that might make him merciful, but that would not make him just. You cannot just ignore wrongdoing. You cannot just leave sin and, and wrongdoing unpunished. And so in order for God to be both merciful and just, God becomes a man, he becomes Jesus, and Jesus pays for the penalty of sin. Jesus goes to the cross, and he dies a bloody death. He takes our curse upon himself. He takes the wrath of God that ought to be poured out on us because of our sin on himself, even though he is without sin. And he dies. That's what it actually takes for God to forgive sins. How do we know, though? How do we know that Jesus can forgive our sins? That he can forgive the, the paralytic's sins and your sins and my sins? Yes, because the paralyzed man rose and walked out the door. But that's not the only person who rises in the Gospel of Mark. That same word here in verse 11, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And then he says, verse 12, and he rose. That word rose is the same word used in the very last chapter of the Gospel of Mark when it says, Jesus rose. You see, even though Jesus died, on that cross, and was laid in that tomb, he also got up and walked out that tomb. And because he walked out that tomb, because he conquered death, which is the greatest consequence, the greatest penalty for sin, we know he can actually forgive our sin. 
He can actually deal with our sin. And so when we come and we wrestle with actually God, do you actually know how wicked and vile I am? Do you see how deep this stain goes? He goes, yes, but I'm alive. And so there is no sin that is left unpaid for. Only God can do that. And so let me conclude like this. Let me show you just how much better God is than we can ever imagine. Let me pull up these five things again. These common spiritual beliefs. Let me read them again. This is what our culture believes. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifthly, good people go to heaven when they die. But God, as he reveals himself, is this. A God exists who created the world and lived in the world. His name is Jesus. Jesus wants people to experience his transforming power. Thirdly, the central goal in life is to have a relationship with Jesus. Fourthly, Jesus died to resolve all our problems and especially our greatest problem, sin. And fifthly, bad people, bad people who put their faith in Jesus receive forgiveness and live forever though they die. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you really are far greater than we could have ever imagined on our own. So God, I pray, we come to you. That's all we do. We just say, if we can just get before you, Jesus, you can change us. God, we don't come with anything in our hands. We don't try to earn this. God, but we believe. We hold on to you by faith, trusting that what you did on the cross, that your life was good enough, not us. So God, I pray, if there are any here who still wrestle, who still feel the weight of their sin, Jesus, would you empower them now to receive your forgiveness? God, we know you ultimately want to make all things new. You want to restore us completely. God, but do the most important thing first. Forgive us and restore our relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name and it's because of him that we pray all of this. Amen.